Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So let's continue with looking at the polyken. Uh, the and I'm going to say this with quotes, the original source material of the Buddha. Um, one of the themes that I've been talking about, or has been, I've been trying to express is that one of the uh, characteristics of the Buddha's teaching is anti-essentialism. That there is no essence that one can point to. Because as soon as you point to a thing, you find every other thing supporting that thing. That the only thing that creates a thing is language. Um, so in a way, at every turn, the Buddha is always trying to pull the rug out from under your feet as you're trying to create an absolute. But I think it goes too far to call the Buddha an atheist because the Buddha is not saying there is no absolute. And this is one mistake a lot of people make, is because the Buddha doesn't posit an absolute, it seems like he's saying there is no... Ab- but he doesn't say that, because that would just reverse the theological uh, rhetoric. Okay? Um, the Buddha is trying to pull apart the idealization of the day, of the times. Just like in our culture we really need to take down some of the ideals that make us into children. One of the ideals, I think, that we really need to critique that comes out of our own deep commitment to practice is the crazy notion that all of us uh, live with called happiness. We are a culture of children when we're caught in this idea that the goal of life is to be happy. We need to have attainable human projects. When you're with a kid and they say, I really want to be an astronaut, 
you should say to them, that's fantastic. What can you do to be an astronaut? What does it mean to you to be an astronaut? Why do you want to be an astronaut? How would you become an astronaut? What would happen if you were an astronaut? What would you get to experience as an astronaut? But if there is an adult and they say to you, I really want to be an astronaut, you should say, how on earth are you going to become an astronaut? <laughs> I think one of the things that makes adults feel inadequate is when there's a cultural ideal that is unattainable and a constant life of happiness is unideal that makes us suffer because life's not always happy. And then if you think everything should always be happiness, you shut down your skill set, your resilience for being able to meet your life when you're not happy. And being unhappy can be a very rich and creative time. Or as I said the other day, my editor said rather, uh, being divorced is the best time of your life. <laughs> um, so in this sutta called the declared and the undeclared, the Buddha is going to uh, the Buddha is in dialogue, and the dialogue in this version has been taken out, just so it's easier to read, um, is, is talking with someone and debating with someone who comes to him to talk about absolutes. So somebody comes to the Buddha and says, is the world eternal? Or is the world not eternal? Is the world finite? Or is the world infinite? Is the soul the same as the body? Or is the soul one thing and the body another thing? After the death, after death, a tathagata, so that's a Buddha, or you, exists. After death, you do not exist. After death, you both exist and do not exist. After death, you neither exist nor do not exist. <laughs> so, so this is a famous teaching because this is where the Buddha talks about what one can talk about and what one should not talk about. It, in other words, he's going to define his scope of his teaching. Mm -hmm. Here's how you can work with the strain in your life, and here is just is what you can think about that isn't helpful for that. Now, what strikes me, and it's just really a recent insight for me in the last week reading this, is that what's, what's interesting about these questions is 2,000 years later, there's still the questions that we can't answer. <laughs> in other words, in so many ways, they're besides the point. Is the mind the same as the body? Or is the mind not the same as the body? Is the brain dependent on the body? 
Is the brain not depend? I mean, these are the questions we still have not been able to answer. So, the Buddha says. Oh, so the, uh, because the dialogue is taken out, it's a little hard to read this. But so the Buddha now is speaking, and he's kind of making a joke. So he's saying, if someone comes to me and says, the Buddha does not declare these to me, and I do not approve of and accept the fact that he does not declare these to me, only if he declares to me, either the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, then I will lead the spiritual life under him. But if he does not, I'm going to abandon my training with him. So this is what I was talking about Friday night, about... Is a religious life what you do, or is it what you believe? And the Buddha is kind of making a joke, saying, if someone comes to me for training, likely they'll say to me, if you tell me this exists, then I'll train with you. If you tell me this does not exist, then I will train with you. But if you're not going to get into that, I can't train with you. (laughs) and he's saying but that's just creating a new belief system which is in a way just uh, more ideology then he says suppose Malunkyaputta a man were wounded by an arrow here's the dart metaphor again a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison And his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or of medium height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the man who wounded me lives in such a village. You can, he's like really going far. <laughs> or town or city. Until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow. Until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark. Until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild, cultivated, or organic. (laughs) Until I know with what kind of feathers the arrow that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture, or a crow, or a hawk, or a peacock, or a stork. Until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped, or curved, or barbed, or calf-toothed, or oleander. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile, he would die. So, if anyone should say that I will not lead the the spiritual life under the Buddha until the Buddha declares to me that the world is eternal and so forth, that would still remain undeclared by the Buddha. And meanwhile that person would die. (laughs) It was fantastic, isn't it? He just, he takes it so far. (laughs) 
And like I was saying earlier, when you read this kind of material, you really get a sense of the person of the Buddha trying to push somebody with humor. You know? But the thing that, as you were saying yesterday, I mean, this was written down 800 years after he yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but, but there was an oral tradition. And you think it's pretty... One of the things we know as kind of, like from where we are in history is that the oral tradition in India was so precise oh, okay. and in fact can be more trusted than anything that was ever written down. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, any of you who've done a little bit of chanting in Sanskrit, you know that one of the incredible things about that language is there was a way of putting words and sentences together that made it very, very easy to memorize. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that uh, the oral tradition was probably more trustworthy than anything else. Yeah. You must have had some method. Oh, lots of methods. Yeah, lots of methods. And who carried it and how they yeah. carried it. And, and imagine how good this was for your brain. Yeah. I mean, even today at lunch, people were saying, I don't remember what you said yet this morning. Should I be taking notes? Because I, I just don't remember anything. And we were joking about how this is a lot like the single excellent life. Can we, can we keep going here? Yes. Malunkya Putta. If there is the view that the world is eternal, the spiritual life cannot be lived. The emphasis on that sentence should be lived. If, if you're attached to the view that this world goes on, then a spiritual life cannot be lived. Whether there is the view... The world is eternal, there is birth, there is death, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the destruction of which I prescribe here and now. Malunkya Putta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared is declared. What have I declared? So he's talking about what he hasn't declared. Well, what have I declared? This is dukkha. This life has a strain. There is an origin to this strain. There is a cessation to this strain. And there is a path leading to the cessation of strain. I have declared this. And why have I declared this? Because it's beneficial and it belongs to the fundamentals of spiritual life. It leads to disenchantment. I love this word. To not be enchanted. To dispassion to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening to Nibbana, which is the Pali of Nirvana. That's why I have declared it. 
Then, Venerable Malunkyaputta approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if you would teach me the Dhamma in brief. <laughs> in other words, just, yeah, what... Well, in a way, he, but, but listen to the, how the dialogue's happening. In a way, he's saying, so just tell me, what do I have to do? Because I know if I ask you what to believe in, you're not going to say anything. So what do I do? Um, Venerable sir, it would be good if you would teach me the Dhamma in brief, so I can dwell alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute. In other words... He, the Buddha can probably feel like you can feel with someone like this. You just gave them an answer that's not what they wanted to hear, and they're still there. And they're saying, I want to go deep. Can you support me? And the Buddha says, um, Here, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you, in what you see, there is only what you see. In what you hear, there is only what you hear. In everything you sense, there is only what you sense. In what you think, there is only what you think. In other words, when you hear something, there is not something beyond that that's sacred. In what you sense, there's just what you're sensing. To me, this is like cognitive psychology 101. Then you will not be of that. When you are not of that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you will be neither here, nor in the hereafter, nor in between the two. This is the end of strain. This needs a little bit of unpacking. <laughs> In the scene, there is just the scene. This is what we're trying to tell you in meditation practice. Everybody here is working on this. That when you see something, you, in time as you practice, begin to see more clearly because you're not filtering what you're seeing like looking out through a dirty window over time you start to see that the window is dirty and as you see that the window is dirty it, you start to realize that you can see past the window and you can start to see more and more clearly and meditation is cle cleaning the dirt off the window so to speak it's windshield wipers. And, but in what you see, there's just what you see. 
there's nothing more than that. Now, that, now, if you understand the cultural context in India at the time, that's not, that goes against the primary teaching of the time, which is behind what you see is Brahman, is God, is the one. And the Buddha is being a phenomenologist here and just saying, no, in what you see, there's just what you see. That is sacred. And if you can see that, then you don't become that, and you also don't build a sense of self, and you also don't live in the hereafter, and you're also not limited just by being here. All that is still more cognition. So I think we can all try this. When you feel um, uh, embarrassed, that's a good emotion. When you feel embarrassed, can you just feel embarrassed? Or do you have to cover it up and add to it and figure out how you can gain from it? When you go into the forest and you look at the trees, can you just look at the trees with a deeper intuition of your relationship with the trees without having to add a creation story? When you're with a family member and they die, can you just be with the family member when they die? When you're with someone and they're dying, it's an incredible thing. It, it's a, it also happens when you're around a birth. You can touch something that's so much deeper than what you feel in your daily life. It's a timeless feeling that you can connect with when you're at a birth and when you're at a death. And maybe one of the reasons why we sit every day is because when you practice meditation, that's the same thing that you touch. You touch that timeless experience. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to declare that that is something, or that that isn't something, or that that is neither something or not something, or either something and something. And that sounds a little like funny, but he's just going to all the places the mind goes. Like, if it is this, it isn't this. If it isn't this, it isn't this or that. If it's neither this or that, then it must be that, right? And that's just the binary, binary thinking. And so he's trying to cover those bases. Um, and I love this line. I actually think this line is underrated, but there's something really interesting in it. When he's saying, you are neither here or in the hereafter or in between the two. Because most of us do this. Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be in the hereafter. And people say, no, 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 you're just here. But actually, you are not here any more than you are in the hereafter. And then the mind goes, well, then I'm in between. But, but the you is not actually in any of those things. <laughs> 
just like you are not in the scene. There's just what's seen. You're not in it. Unless you add yourself to it. And when you can experience the scene so deeply that the you falls away, then this is the end of strain. When there is hearing and there's just hearing without adding a me to it, then there is no strain in the hearing. Do you, do you understand what's being said, said by that? When there is breathing and there's the feeling of breathing and it just takes over and there's pleasure in breathing, there's less and less and less of me. And that lessening of me is the lessening of strain. There is a, a teacher named Ajahn Chah who said, um, uh, a little, wait, how did he say? A lot of clinging, a lot of suffering. A little bit of clinging, a little bit of suffering. No clinging, no suffering. <laughs> So simple. Uh, the end. Uh, f- following these, you'll notice that um, there is the uh, printout of the first, the, the sutta that I taught on Friday and Saturday. Uh, one single excellent night, which you've probably forgot. <laughs> um, so, what do you hear? What does this bring, bring up for you? Can we talk about this for a few minutes before we finish? This is a really interesting thing he's saying, the declared and the undeclared. And then this person who shows up saying, well, I can't study with you if you can't declare what what I should believe in. And he spins it and he gives him a different practice. It's so much easier to just tell, have someone tell you what to believe in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like the, if you can't see it it's not real if you can't touch it it's not and if mm-hmm. you can't believe it and if you can't see it and feel it and mm-hmm. hold it and touch it it's, yeah. is it really there mm-hmm. why should I believe in it if I don't or believe or follow you if I can't yeah. yeah just I had a discussion with my father on Easter Sunday he wants me to come back to the church and I need to go to the tabernacle and I need to he prays every day that I come back to the church and that I go to church and pray. I said, I'd rather take a walk in the woods and listen to the birds. Yeah. And he doesn't understand that. Yeah. Because I say, I'm sorry, your prayers are wasted because I'm not, that's yeah. not for me. Yeah. But that's what he needs it to be for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe one day you'll say, yeah, I'll come with you. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come with you. If that's meaningful to you, I'll come with you. No problem. 
I'm just playing with you a little bit. But, you know, also don't hold on to that either. I can't go into the church. The prayers don't mean something to me. This is bad. I don't support it. I say this partly because um, I, I grew up in a very conservative Jewish community. And so my whole life, after I was 13, was just to fight all the values of that community. Um, and then, a few years ago, I started remembering that when, when I was a small kid, I my favorite thing was on Saturday morning to put on my suit and go to the synagogue and chant and pray. I loved it. Um, and... Uh, but I had forgotten that I loved that that part of it. Um, so then, uh, in in recent years, I've been trying to find my way back to Judaism because I think that there's something really beautiful in that tradition that's behind everything that I don't like. And so uh, this past year, a woman came to a retreat of mine who's who's come to many retreats of mine, uh, Joyce, and she said to me, would you teach a Jewish meditation retreat (laughs) where we did full Jewish practice and Buddhist meditation? Um, And I said, you know, I'm not learned in Judaism. I could never do it. She says, no, we'll find a rabbi and you'll co-teach with the rabbi. So I said, okay, if you find the rabbi, I'll do it. So we went through a few rabbis. <laughs> and then I met this woman uh, who is a rabbi. She's the same age as me. It turns out we grew up at the same synagogue. And then she went and did her rabbinical studies at Harvard. She's super smart. Uh, she's uh, democratic, really learned, and is gay. And to me, it's like, this is the perfect combination. And so uh, this fall, we're going to teach the first of what I hope is going to be an annual Buddhist retreat. And it's going to start on a Friday. And on the Friday night, we're going to do Shabbat, the Sabbath, with all the prayers, uh, the whole Jewish thing. And, And we've also agreed, because mostly the people who come will be Jewish, that we're, it's going to have uh, not all silence. That in the middle of the day there's going to be talking because Jewish people can't be silent. Um, so, so anyways, the, the reason why I mention that is uh, also to see where one of the things that we all need to heal from that I don't understand how to heal from is the wounds of your birth religion. You know, because a lot of us, we we left a religion, we jumped into a new one that we think is not religion, and in doing so, we're avoiding a little bit some of the way that we're wounded from the religion of our birth. And, And I think that it's our responsibility to go back also to the religion that we grew up in and, and, and uh, find the heart of it. Um, because it's in you. 
it's in your ancestry and it's a it's a really important thing to to have peace with yes um, I love this conversation because um, the Catholicism that I was born into there's so much of it that is so beautiful but there's so so much that I um, I just so don't believe in, in so that is why I've you know gone other paths. So then I think, and so some of the reasons why I don't engage in the mass, which I think is beautiful, mm. is I say you're being hypocritical. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So could you speak to that in the sense? Because I agree with you. There are, and, and sometimes I'll, 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 I'll stay with that. There was an editorial in the New York Times last week, and it was this beautiful um, description on what a Catholic stands for. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it was everything that I find here. Yeah. So could you talk to that? Like I said, like, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite or I don't want to be, you know, um, or I don't want to have to talk to my um, deeply devout Catholics who are my neighbors and who there are so many other things that I yeah. care about them, but I avoid them. Because yes. They're going to come at me with, they're going to try to, like, you know, your dad, they're going to say, oh, hey, and so things, yeah. that's why you avoid it. So, anyhow. Well, uh, I can, all I can tell you is how I'm working with it. So, what I've discovered is if you follow what the Buddha is saying here and you have conversations with people without getting into the belief, conversation then there is a meeting point but if you try and get into the conversation and the conversation starts moving into beliefs then it's not going to go anywhere it's not going to go anywhere but if you you keep the spirit of what you do and yeah and not what you believe then there's a meeting place that's healing for both people. But as soon as you start to feel the conversation going into, well, Buddhists believe, it's over. It's over. Yeah. You can't, no one can win that. Yeah. It's a good way to start a war. <laughs> and it's a good way to also know how to help people. Yeah. Yeah. Because if they are rooted in that belief. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it, sometimes it's possible to have that conversation around belief. But my personal opinion <laughs> is that you just avoid it like crazy. Right, right, right. Yeah. But you can help people without having that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the funny thing about um, uh, friends of mine who are Buddhist chaplains mm -hmm. is they're the most popular chaplains in the hospital because they're really meeting people where they're at and they're not getting into uh, especially people who are doing palliative care work they're just not getting into belief they're just meeting people where they're at and they tend to be the chaplains that more and more people are wanting to see they have a great reputation and it's really interesting I find that it's hard to go back to 
the religion that I was raised in because my experience, and I'm sure everyone's different, was that I was always bad. Everything I did, I was bad. And mm -hmm. if I was bad, I was going to have a black soul, mm -hmm. one little dot at a time for every bad thing I did, and I was ultimately going to burn in hell. Yeah. So as I grew up, I was such a rebel. So with all my rebellion came all that responsibility for being bad, living bad, and mm. I was always bad. So I still have that feeling that, you know, I make jokes of it like I'm going to just spontaneously combust when I die because I'm not even going to make it to hell. I'm just yeah, well that, and, yeah. You know, things like that, yeah. because I always felt, no matter how good or how much I prayed, or, yeah. I made up sins in confession so that I had something to say to the priest so he thought I was good, yeah. you know, and it's hard to go back when all you felt and still feel sitting there is that, oh shit. Yeah, that whole, you know, thread from St. Augustine you know, <laughs> is such a heavy thing to carry that at the bottom you are a sinner. Um, when Buddhism, when the Dharma becomes Buddhism, it gets that. The Buddhists also have a health. The only difference between the Christian hell and the Buddhist hell is the Buddhist hell is impermanent. So it, it, you don't stay there for, you don't go to hell, you just go to hell for a while. <laughs> like, like a couple billion years or something. Um, yeah. But hell, in the Buddhist sense, is, a, is considered kind of like a gymnasium. You, you go to hell to, to do a workout. Um, but it's an impermanent realm that you're working on uh, to move back into a different realm. And, and all this belief system gets added to the Buddha's teachings as time goes on. Um, so I also don't want to pretend that the Buddhists don't have any hell or whatever. But Buddhists don't have this idea that at the core you're bad. The Buddhist idea is at the core you have bodhi, which is a, a, awake, the possibility of awakening. That's what you have at the core. Now, one of the wounds we have from our birth religion, if it came with this baggage, is having to work through this belief that we've internalized that we're bad. And that is heavy karma. When you internalize that, it's so bad. So we have to work with that. Uh, partly because, and it's the last thing I'll say about this, but partly is politically, that belief system uh, dovetails impeccably with consumerism. Because if you're bad, then... Um, consumerism will make you feel more like a self. That you then feel like to be somebody, you have to buy, you, you have to buy things and consume things 
to be somebody over top of that deep feeling of being bad. And um, that's something that we have to see as a false belief system that just is hurtful more than anything else. And also, if you feel that in yourself, you're going to think that about other people. You're always checking yourself. Mm-hmm. Like your decisions and what you're doing. People yeah. You're always checking yourself. It's like good. It's like, and now you're baseless, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Where am I at? What, yeah. what list am I on? This yeah. Good month or year. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And and if you and if you have that, you also should not have a scale in your bathroom. Exactly. Which I got. Just pants. <laughs> so okay, it's three fifty nine. So we should probably chant. Uh, but then we can talk a little bit after. But I know some of you have to leave. So, um, let's finish chanting, and then we'll say goodbye.